0: The year was one of violent labor troubles and strikes. San Francisco's general strike dripped the city in a death like flood While an auto accessory worker strike in Toledo, state guardsmen had to resort to tear gas, lead, and cold steel to curb the temper of the strikers. In Minneapolis, a truck driver strike was climaxed by severe riots and fights between the strikers and the police with many casualties. Warfare in the streets, civic strife at its worst. Hello, and welcome to 1934 Mill City Revolt. I am your host, Kelly Cable. The second Minneapolis Teamster Strike of 1934 began on Wednesday, May 19th. Unlike the Whirlwind Strike, it was not immediately explosive. Although described as like a holiday or just like a normal Sunday, the first days of the strike stopped much of the city's commerce. And this was for two reasons. First, the bosses had ordered many of their trucks to remain parked, and the strikers, having made extensive preparations, mobilized their cruising pickets and shut down the town. The bosses perhaps hoped that after a few days, public opinion would shift in their favor as residents and businesses began to need more food and goods to survive. The Minneapolis Tribune warned its readership that the strike will be, quote, a far-reaching affair, covering all the city and all of its business and industry. Although the city was quiet, the strike machine was in full effect. 3,000 pickets, guided by the strike committee, had turned Minneapolis into a perpetual picnic. As Dobbs said, nothing moved on wheels without the union's permission. The Minneapolis Tribune listed the extent of the strike. General and department stores, groceries, bakeries, cleaners and laundries, meat and provision houses, all building materials, all wholesale houses, all factories, gas and oil companies and stations, breweries, truck and transfer companies, warehouses, and all common carriers. The allowed exceptions? Ice, milk, and now coal. It was estimated that the picketing efficiency was 95%. And another notable exception were the newspapers, who were adamant that daily delivery should continue and backed this up with daily police escorts. Bray Dunn and Farrell Dobbs handled picket dispatching. Using maps, the city split into 15 districts. Dunn and Dobbs could redistribute their own forces, including the stationary pickets, throughout the city on an as-needed real-time basis, as well as station picketers at some 50 entrances to the city on the highways. The strike forces had more than enough cars and cell phone trucks to tie up the city. Teenagers on motorcycles acted as eyes and ears patrolling the streets, ordered to never directly involve themselves in any dispute. Like a military unit, each cruising picket had its captain, who was required to phone into headquarters every 10 minutes, whether from a friendly cigar store, a bar, or a striker's home. They could call in for help or report successes and failures, tracking cruising pickets by number. Journalist Charles Walker described the dispatching mechanism in action. Quote, A messenger took the selected car numbers from dispatchers to a man at a microphone. He called out, Calling cars number two, seven, and nine. Proceed. The cars rapidly assembled their pickets from reserves of strikers in the building. Night or day, never less than 500 men hung around headquarters. A dispatcher's window opened from the garage office onto the runway before the main exits, and as the squad car passed the window, the picket captain received written and secret instructions from the dispatcher. None of the motors were started in the garage to keep the building, which was, after all, a hospital in the dining room too, free of carbon monoxide. The pickets pushed their own squad car till it reached the street when the switch was turned on and the motor started. Picket captains alone received the written destination and instruction for the squad cars and reported back to the dispatcher after each operation was over. This was a precaution against tool pigeons. In some instances, where a larger set of cruising pickets were concentrated they would set up a temporary field command post, which had more autonomy. Dunn and Dobbs also had on hand special cruising squads with hand-picked crews for special assignments or tent situations. Three days into the strike, the police wiretapped the headquarters, forcing Dunn and Dobbs to communicate to picket captains through code. They, in turn, had shortwave radios that could monitor police communications and plan accordingly. In February, when the cruising pickets trapped a scab truck, they would simply dump the coal in the street for anyone to take. This strike, however, broadened the set of commodities to include food, livestock, laundry, and other goods, stuff you couldn't or shouldn't throw into the street. So, in the strike's first days, the cruising pickets escorted trucks to the headquarters, and soon, it and the area surrounding it were crowded with vehicles full of not only coal, but milk, tobacco, tea and coffee, hogs, cattle, and hay. They soon opted for escorts back to their origins, or sometimes simply flipped the car over in the street. Historian Philip Korth interviewed a worker, a laundry driver, who was subjected to the actions of a cruising picket. According to Harvey Bosco, his bosses, the Gross Brothers, were trying to sneak laundry out of the city hidden in cars, rather than by truck. Almost as soon as he pulled out of the driveway, a cruising picket spotted him outside the McPhail School of Music. And fearing the pickets were going to flip the car over, Bosco protested, quote, I'm just a kid working here. I don't know what they did. They told me to take this car out to Oak Knolls and meet somebody. Somewhat disingenuous, but after working back and forth, the pickets decided that he was probably truthful and just following orders. The pickets followed him back to Gross Brothers and stood waiting as Bosco and others unloaded the car. Later, however, at midnight, Gross and Bosco were able to sneak the laundry out of the city and continue to do so throughout the duration of the strike. The cruising pickets were effective, but the city still had some leaks. A particular sore spot for the strikers was the gas filling stations. Numerous times, playing what Dobbs called a cat and mouse game, the attendants would simply reopen the station after the pickets left. On the strike's second day, up to 100 special cruising squads were ordered in resolving the matter by either lassoing a pump and dragging it banging down the street, or a less shocking tactic was to bottle it up, the pumps surrounded by cars and trucks, and then leaving them, taking the keys back to headquarters. And another major sore spot were the farmers. Although 574 had hoped to win them over, they hadn't done their due diligence. Specifically, those of the Market Gardeners Association, the small truck farmers who set up stalls in the city market to sell to small grocers. Now Keep in mind that major grocery chain stores did not yet dominate the industry, and Governor Olson had won over farmers and grocers, partially due to his opposition to such businesses. But at this point, 574 had failed to make any sort of arrangement with them. So when such farmers tried to enter the city, they were turned around by the pickets. The Citizens' Alliance was aware of this fiasco, and hoped to make some hay of it, using them as a front to break the strike. So some days into the strike, around 70 sheriff's deputies escorted a convoy of farmers to the market, which was intercepted by the cruising pickets, resulting in an hour-long running battle along the route. Only three trucks made it to the city market, most farmers turning around. Recognizing their mistake, 574 reached out to the farmers, arranging that they could sell their produce directly to the small grocers throughout town without harassment, keeping the market itself shut down. Dobbs reported that, quote, the truck farmers accepted the proposal and became neutral, some even friendly, toward the strike, end quote. Despite these hangups, 574 enjoyed working class support throughout the city. Factory workers cheered pickets as they passed. Dobbs discusses what he called a spontaneous intelligence service, in which residents phoned in scab sightings, workers sent anonymous letters with employer-paid postage, and typists and personal secretaries gave extra-carbon copies of bosses' dictations or memos found in wastebaskets. Overall, support and opposition to the strike fell along class lines. According to Walker, up to 95% of the working class supported Local 574, some 65% of the total city population. Around two-thirds of the employer's side aligned with the Citizens' Alliance, the other third opposing their hard-line and uncompromising positions. Walker said a majority of the farmers also opposed the strike, but the Farmer Holiday Association was the major exception. The support was reflected in the strike force's explosive growth. In April, they had two to 3,000 members. In the first days of the strike, their forces doubled or tripled to 6,000. As 574 had hoped, hundreds of the unemployed joined the ranks of the pickets, whom Dobbs described as fighting like tigers in the battles that followed. Harry DeBoer explained their tactic. Quote, We took the unemployed right into the union and explained through our revolutionary leadership that they should come and support this strike. We were fighting to get down to a 48-hour work week, and by doing that, there will be more workers going to work, and so you'll be put on the payroll on the union contract if you support the union. There was a lot of unemployed workers that fought along with the union on the picket line, to the extent that we formed a federal workers section after the strike was settled to help these workers get relief. End quote. Workers outside the trucking industry, many not in unions themselves, would show up on their free time before or after work, sometimes even sleeping overnight in the garage before returning to work. Another major source of support came from the taxi drivers, some of whom had joined the union long before February. On Thursday, the drivers for the yellow cab company sent a delegation to the garage, asking to join the fight. The strike committee accepted and sent cruising pickets to notify the city's taxi drivers of a meeting that night. Once gathered, the taxi drivers voted to strike, and according to Dobbs, within hours not a cab was to be found in operation. The strike headquarters at 1900 Chicago Avenue was a hive of activity, providing what Walker called the two-strike fundamentals, food and morale. Some 120 members of the Women's Auxiliary, with the help of the Cook and Waiters Union, worked 12-hour shifts in the kitchen, serving as much as 4,000 to 5,000 people per day at the peak of the strike. They served strikers and their families sandwiches and coffee as well as hot meals when possible. Friendly grocers and sympathetic farmers, including the Farmer Holiday Association, donated produce and meat, including pigs, cattle, and chicken. Chris Moe was able to haul over a truckload of sausages from the Feinberg Sausage Company. On Sundays, they tried to serve chicken dinners along with, of course, this being Minnesota, spam. There was so much spam, apparently, that Marvel Shaw recalled that she still refused to eat it 30 years later. According to August Bartholomew, in an interview with Philip Korth, quote, During the strike, I ate better than I'm doing right now, to tell you the truth. They would have meals for us, and we'd come home with butter, meat, bread, potatoes. End quote. Unions who couldn't donate food donated money for the upkeep of the headquarters, gasoline and medical supplies being the costliest. According to Harry DeBoer, that other unions weren't supplying manpower wasn't much of a problem. Quote, it was better to leave others' work and support us financially and morally than to pull them out too. Then we'd have to support them too, and we didn't need that kind of physical support. We needed finances and moral support. End quote. Returning to the headquarters, armed sentries were posted on the rooftop at all times, and other guards kept order and prevented drinking. A posted sign read, no drinking. You'll need all of your wits. Every evening, the union hosted a public meeting at the headquarters, at least 2,000 unionists, families, and sympathizers piling inside and flooding the surrounding streets. On some evenings, as much as twenty to 25,000 people. These meetings strengthened community, ensuring the workers would not spend their evenings away in preventing alienation. They could also hear reports and speeches from leaders on news, negotiations, the tactics of the bosses, independent of the capitalist propaganda issuing from the newspapers and radio stations. In the middle of all of this activity, the elected strike committee of 75 held regular meetings to discuss and improve tactics and strategies. One special committee was created to handle complaints, mostly from so-called cockroach bosses, usually unjustified and therefore denied. Another committee provided legal assistance for the arrestees, although their first hired lawyer made deals with the public prosecutors, for which he was fired and replaced. Thankfully, in the first few days, less than 20 strikers were arrested. As one of the Duns told the Minneapolis Journal, pretty well organized, don't you think? On Thursday, May 17th, day two of the strike, Governor Olson called for a meeting in hopes of preventing larger clashes. He failed to convince the Employers' Advisory Committee, the EAC, to recognize the union or agree to an arbitration system because, they said, there is nothing to arbitrate as admittedly it is a fair scale. They would consider meeting with elected representatives of the workers or negotiate through the Regional Labor Board, but they would enter no written agreements. The EAC told Olson that, quote, We intend to and will start the flow of merchandise into its usual and customary channels forthwith and without any more delays. We ask you, as the highest official of our state, to aid and assist our business firms in the orderly conduct of their business. We cannot and will not permit or allow our city to be seized and its industry ruined." End quote. Olson responded saying he was grievously disappointed and rejected the employer's contradictions. He said, not only should they compromise." given that Local 574 had again dropped the demand for a written contract but held onto an arbitration board, but, quote, "...it seems inconsistent to me for you to state in one sentence that you will agree to bargain collectively with your employees, and in the following sentence to state that you refuse to sign a written agreement with them. One who is willing to make a bargain is usually willing to bind it by written contract." End quote. The hypocrisy was so obvious that Olson had to take the workers' side while the strike remained what he deemed a sensible course. Olson knew, however, that the holiday would not last. He wrote to the employers, You have undertaken to pay the salary and expenses of some 500 additional city police officers who are, to my best information, being selected indiscriminately. That these forces will clash is inevitable if the strike continues. That serious physical injury will result to these persons is probable. That injury may result a persons having no connection with the controversy is possible. Due to Olson's well-established dislike of violence and disruption, he continued with a threat. Quote, In the event that local government cannot preserve law and order, it will be my duty to use the military force of the government. If that becomes necessary, the military department will take complete charge of the distribution of commodities which the citizens of Minneapolis desire to purchase and will commandeer such equipment and conscript such manpower as is necessary to bring about that distribution and to maintain law and order. If these steps do not accomplish the end desired, further steps, consistent with military occupation of the city, will be taken. End quote. Indeed, at the end of episode 3, I quoted Olson following his declaration of a mortgage moratorium for farmers, which prevented a violent outbreak in 1933. At that point, he said, quote, I am doing that which I could do under martial law without declaring martial law to halt impending riots and insurrection. It is my duty as governor to preserve law and order in the state. He had hoped, however, to not declare martial law, but to remove the cause of such disturbances. Thus, Olson in 1934 remained true to the essence of his administrative practice established the year before. And, as Olson said, the city of Minneapolis had gone on a hiring spree. Republican Mayor Bainbridge had authorized the police chief Mike Johannes to hire 500 additional cops, specifically to police the strike and provide escorts for trucks. Thus Olson would be put to the test. On day three of the strike, Friday, May 18th, the Citizens' Alliance and the Employers' Advisory Committee held a rally at their headquarters on 1328 Hennepin Avenue for the employing class. It was presided by C.C. C. Weber, the grandson of John Deere, and president of the Deer Weber Agricultural Implement and Machine Maker Company. He declared that, quote, The Strikers are run by a handful of agitators, local and imported. Our job is to see that we are not dictated to by a mere handful. Never mind the mere handful that was the Citizens' Alliance. A so-called patriotic golfer with quite a name, Totten P. V. Heffelfinger, had been tapped to lead the creation of a private army. The proprietor of the P V Company, one of the local grain giants that was later purchased by Conagra Foods, and founder of the Hazeltine Golf Club in Chaska, Heffelfinger was emblematic of the Citizens' Alliance itself, wealthy, a philanthropist, and violently anti-union. He said before his fellow businessmen, quote, There may be 5,000 men on strike in Minneapolis, but not 5,000 or 10,000 or 25,000 people can bring the citizens of Minneapolis to their knees, end quote. Weber and Heffelfinger called for the creation of a committee of 25, a law and order committee, with the purpose of, quote, setting up to organize special deputies, acting in consultation with the sheriff and police chief. Thus, the Citizens' Alliance returned to a tried-and-true tactic from the previous decade. Not only would this army be made of businessmen, but also professionals, such as doctors and lawyers, frat boys from the University of Minnesota, as well as citizens hired from jail or the ranks of the unemployed. Major Harris, asked to prepare and lead this army for action, said he had a, quote, good deal of experience handling mobs, and breaking the strike could be done without any bloodshed whatsoever, end quote. Not everyone was enthused by the prospect of this private army. The police were snubbed by the American Legion, an anti-socialist veterans organization formed after World War I, that once compared itself to the fascist Italian blackshirts, and had even invited Mussolini to speak at its convention just four years earlier in 1930. Although they had committed their fair share of violence against communists and wobblies, they rejected the police's appeal in a meeting at the Lumber Exchange Building. They said, quote, In any dispute between capital and labor, the interest of the legion is confined to maintenance of law and order and without taking part in either side. The Citizens' Alliance asked the veterans of foreign wars to contribute forces, but the VFW considered such an asinine request. The EAC made their first major attempt to move goods on the fourth day of the strike, May 19th, Saturday. The trucks were, to be again, moved under police escort. 425 strikebreakers, armed with clubs and blackjacks, both police and special deputies, appeared at the city market to move trucks of the Burman Fruit Company. Strikers, arriving unarmed, thought the police would not fight or attack them. They were wrong. Dobbs quotes a written report from Jack Maloney. Quote, We had quite a beef. Several of us were clubbed by the police. I, for one, was dragged into Bearman's unconscious. When I came to, Harold Beale and Louis Scullard were also in custody inside there, and the patrol wagon came shortly. I was bleeding quite heavily from the head, and after Harold and Louis were put in the wagon, the cops took me out, and when they let go of me at the wagon, I fell down. In the ensuing melee, the pickets picked me up and carried me over towards 6th and Hennepin. They called an ambulance and I was taken to the general hospital, as were some of the other pickets. After the doctors had patched up my head, I was placed in a room, waiting to go to jail. The business agent of the steamfitters union came to where I was sitting and said to the woman at the desk, I will take this man. We walked out into the hallway and he said, get the hell out of here quick, end quote. Maloney's predicament was the very reason for the hospital in the strike headquarters. Rather than being a safe zone, a hospital bed was a trap. Because this was still early in the strike, Pickets had not yet internalized this lesson. They wouldn't make the same mistake again when they needed the hospital care later that night. And not only were they defeated in physical battle, the employers and strikebreakers managed to blow a temporary hole in the strike and moved 80 trucks. 574 wrote to Governor Olson about the incident, informing him that, quote, The cops were brutally breaking the heads of our workers with the use of clubs, blackjacks, and lead pipes. We have 12 men seriously and maybe fatally injured in the hospital. End quote. The union withdrew its delegates from Olson's meetings and warned him that, quote, We will throw out a general call for every worker in Minneapolis and vicinity to assist us in protecting our rights and our lives. Perhaps bolstered by their victory in the morning, the Citizens' Alliance concocted a plan to further break Union morale in what is known as the Tribune Alley Plot. Grant Dunn recalled, quote, A man came to us recommended as an active worker in one of the farmer labor wards who wanted to help the strike all he could. We took him in, and he worked hard at all kinds of jobs. I used to watch him and think him one of our best men. He was there 20 hours a day and always busy. Somehow he got onto the mic one night for announcing cars, end quote. This man was James O'Hara. When he took the mic, Dunn and Dobbs were in a planning meeting. He relayed orders for two to three truckloads of pickets, including women. They were to go to Tribune Alley, or Newspaper Alley, where the major dailies were printed and loaded for shipment. The strike leaders had heard reports of police escorts in the works, but hadn't made their blockage a priority. When the pickets arrived at Tribune Alley, they found themselves in a cul-de-sac, trapped Armed cops and special deputies ambushed the Strikers, beating them. Severely. As recalled, I remember the night. They brought the women in and the other pickets from the Tribune Alley and laid them down in rows in strike headquarters. All the women were mutilated and covered with blood, two or three with broken legs. Several stayed unconscious for hours. Saps and nightclubs had been used on both the men and the women. When the Strikers saw them lying around with the nurses working over them, They got hold of clubs and swore they'd go down and wipe up the police and deputies. We told them no. The alley was a trap. We'll prepare for a real battle, and we'll pick our own battleground next time. That night, and all next day, and the next night, fellows began to collect clubs. They'd gone unarmed before that. Now, they got sticks, hose, and pipe. You'd see men all over headquarters making saps and patting their caps for a battle. One picket would crack another over the head and say, Does it hurt? And he'd say, Yeah, I can feel it. I'll put in some more. That's the way it went. The fellows were wild there for a couple of days. Some of the most severely injured strikers were sent to the hospital, where shocked doctors and nurses luckily helped patients flee. Sympathetic druggists donated supplies to help those who remained in the headquarters hospital. James O'Hara, this agent provocateur, returned to headquarters the following morning as if nothing had happened. Fully aware that he was responsible for the incident, the strikers grabbed a hold of him, searching him and his car. They found membership cards to unions, the Farmer Labor Party, and most importantly, the Burns Detective Agency, an outfit similar to the Pinkertons that employers frequently hire to infiltrate unions. Soon after, two cops barged into the garage demanding O'Hara's release, Still simmering with anger, the Strikers beat up the two cops and left them sitting outside unconscious for the ambulance. Dobbs recalled that, quote, So many pickets had gone for the two police that they got in one another's way. Sherman Oaks, a coal and ice driver, swung a club at one cop and accidentally hit another striker, Bill Abar, breaking his arm. Sherman burst into tears. We couldn't figure out whether it was because he hit Bill or because he missed the cop, end quote. According to Dobbs, these two incidents on Saturday... The morning defeat in the market and the ambush at Alley began to reshape the beliefs and assumptions of the workers. Dobbs wrote, quote, the negative side of their beliefs lies in the assumption that they have inviolable democratic rights under capitalist rule. It is a mistaken assumption that can remain intact in the long run only until they try to exercise such rights in the class struggle. When that happens, the workers learn that they have been the victims of an illusion yet they still feel entitled to the rights involved, and they will fight all the harder to make them a reality. A negative misconception, then, becomes transformed into a positive aspiration, as was about to happen in Minneapolis. What Dobbs referred to is one of the two most infamous events of the 1934 Minneapolis Teamster Strike, the Battle of Deputies Run, which we will cover in the next episode. This is 1934, Mill City Revolt, and I'm your host, Kelly Cable. Thank you for listening.